Psychology in Seattle. So, Bob, uh, you, the last time you were on the podcast, you talked about a dialectical, dialectic behavioral therapy, DBT therapy technique, and the listeners liked it so much, I thought I'd have you back on the show and we would do another skill. What do you say we do that? Yeah, let's do that. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Bob? And you're rolling your eyes. <laughs> I'm rolling my eyes because this is the second time we've recorded the intro to yep. this. And uh, I, I, I'm just laughing at myself that I'm repeating myself. Who are you, Bob? Please tell us. You know, us. it's funny because while you were doing that, you're like, okay, let's do a crisper one. And I'm thinking, how do I pull you into a tangent? <laughs> and I was thinking... You're saying, I'm, I'm Dr. Kirk Hahn. I'm like, and it sounded to me like, I'm Mr. Rourke. Welcome to Fantasy Island, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Smiles, everyone. Smiles. <laughs> Smiles. Oh, who am I? I'm Tattoo. <laughs> uh, my name's Bob Gettle. I am your the friend. The plane, the plane. <laughs> so these jokes, I'm sure, go over the head of 99% of the listeners out there. Who had better things to do on Saturday night in well, 1982. Well, and they're too young, just way too young. I mean, I, I'm barely old enough to uh -huh. remember that show myself. Oh, so. I'm not. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, uh, I'm your friend from before you had a doctorate um, and a therapist here in practice in Seattle, seeing couples and running a DBT skills class. To be clear, Bob, you're barely older than me, but, <laughs> but the... Uh, Fantasy Island of the TV show was on when I was probably like eight years old or yeah. something. Yeah. Maybe seven ish. And it was after it was after Love Boat. Yeah, that's right. Saturday night. On Saturday night, right. So yep. Love Boat was on at I think nine and eight. then oh eight and then Fantasy Island was on at nine. Yeah. And that was past my bedtime. So only sometimes I could watch oh, it. Oh yeah. Also, it kind of dealt with some racy things. Yeah. You know, Captain Steubing had like five wives or something. That wasn't that. Oh, part that's right. That's right. Oh no, was it the Doc? Or the Doc had five wives? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And every episode, it was called the Love Boat. The Love Boat. You know, it was about you know people having you know sex and Love stuff and yeah. whatnot. And then yeah. Fantasy Island. Have you watched an episode of Fantasy Island recently? Yes, in the last year, I did. It's awful. It's terrible. It's like. So for those of you who aren't familiar, so when I my if if you would have just asked me what the TV show was about if without having rewatched it from my eight year old memory, it was this wonderful show about this island somewhere I think in the Pacific yeah. somewhere right and and God as I describe it, so there's all these island native women who work there and right. men so it's sort of like a Hawaii in a sense like a Maui or something. And, but this white man who, Ricardo Montalban yeah. of uh, con fame of Star Trek, he is, uh, he seems like some sort of European, Hispanic, you know, some kind of, uh, he has an accent, yeah. you know, he's right. a sophisticated right. Spanish uh, uh, rich guy. Yeah. And he owns this island and he has this assistant named Tattoo, right. who is a... Uh, little person. Hervé Villages. What? Hervé Villages. You know his name. Oh, yeah. I think there's a documentary about him. Or not a documentary, a film. Uh, a fascinating film. A with, film? Uh, Peter Dinklage uh, played him. Oh. Yeah. Wow. I can't remember what it's called. I saw it in the last year. It was really interesting. That's incredible. He's an interesting guy. You are a trap. Your brain. 
And so, well, so just that alone should raise a lot of hackles where you have this white guy, European, I don't know where he was supposed to be from, but owning this island and, you know. And having godlike powers because he granted these people's fantasies. They would come to the island for a weekend, tell them what their fantasy was, and, and they'd get to live it out. Right. And he had like magic. Like yeah. there was always this implied magic he had. But from my memory, yeah. it was more subtle. But watch, oh, yeah. watching the show, it's not subtle. Yeah. It's like like the one episode I saw was, you know, it was always this, Ricardo Montalban was always this like suave guy. And so right. people are getting off the seaplane. Right. Smiles, everyone smiles. And they're getting laid. You know, there's, there's the lays that are being put on. <laughs> and someone would say something like, oh, I'm here because I heard it was so great here and I'm really looking forward to this. And Ricardo Montalban would say, well, we'll see by the end. <laughs> right. Or something like that. And then... Darkness. This, I think it was a woman she, she or a man, I can't remember. And she, they go, I think it was a man. And he goes off uh, wandering on the island and he comes upon a Western town, like right. a, like an old Western town right? in the middle of this Island right. in the Pacific. Right. And it's like this, he's like, well, this is pretty neat. It's like this, it's like Westworld. Like he walks into a saloon and there's like fun things happening. And then, then there's these rocks that like have these powers and like all the townspeople start turning on him. And then there's this woman who's like seducing him. And in the end, he like, escapes with his life because they're trying to kill him uh-huh. and the the fantasy or the lesson or the moral of the story was completely lost on me it was just basically this psychedelic adventure Jeez. that had i can't imagine why anyone would watch that show yeah i don't remember that episode well you totally successfully got me off off track thanks bob you're welcome here to help. <laughs> uh, last time when we did the other intro, you got me off track by talking about Dr. Laura Schlesinger, but we'll, we'll do that another time. Um, so actually, I want to make this episode only for patrons of the podcast. I apologize. If you want to hear this episode, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. Become a patron of our podcast. and You'll get access to this episode, the other episode on DBT, and the hundreds of other episodes that we do on various different things along these lines. So go to Patreon now. Hey, Colleen's been listening to the episode about attachment and really enjoying it. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I, your wife, that's that's high praise. Yeah. Let me know what she thinks in the end. Okay. All right. Welcome to the Patron Zone, people. So, Bob, you... I asked you yeah. earlier this week to come today mm-hmm. with a DBT skill. Mm-hmm. What did you bring me? Oh, today I thought we'd talk about being non-judgmental. Okay. Yeah. So last time we talked about mindfulness. Mindfulness and uh, the skill of observing, noticing what's going on. The observing self or Ob- the observing, wise mind? Well, yeah, wise mind being um, the state of mind that humans have and that being uh, uh, observing what you notice outside you and inside you is a great way to help a person get to their wise or centered self. Okay. Yeah. And being non-judgmental is another aspect of that. People that are in their wise or centered self often drop judgment um, naturally. And um, one of the things I've noticed about dropping judgment is um, when we see things as they are, compassion is a natural outcome. 
Like everything that's unfolding, even the stuff that we don't like, the stuff that we find reprehensible, makes sense. So, um, like for me, I don't know if this is applicable, is when I encounter someone who is very annoying to me, right, or hurtful, or right, scary, or something, right. I find a a path in my mind of that leads me to a conceptualization that is yeah. uh, um, probably accurate, but at the very least wouldn't appear to be ju- wouldn't appear to be judgmental. That I might think, well, they're obviously really scared right now, and they're they're puffing up with anger and and aggression because they they just feel really threatened and my guess is is be, the reason why they feel so threatened by something so small is because they've been massively traumatized and they learned from the age of 4 that if they didn't puff up like that then they they'd really be hurt so um so uh I'm not I'm going to see it that way and that le- if I really believe that in my bones then that leads to a a, a different perception of that person and also a different kind of attitude towards them. Right. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, it is. Cause, um, a different worldview, you might perceive uh, someone behaving that way as a threat. And then you have this urge to protect yourself. And a lot of times what we do is we make the things that we see as threats. We call them bad. That's a bad thing. That's a bad person. Or we use words like evil. You know, I don't actually believe in or know what that word really means. Evil. Mm-hmm. It's so absolute. Uh, we use phrases like good and words like good and bad. We say that things should or shouldn't happen. But when you think about it, everything in the universe that actually happens is the stuff that should happen, given the things that came before. We say it shouldn't happen when we when we hate it, when we really dislike it, when we have disdain or contempt for a thing. We say it shouldn't happen, and the problem with that is we end up taking ourselves literally. Well, that shouldn't happen. But you and me, we live in Seattle, right? So we get stuck in heavy traffic a lot of the time because that's just the nature of things. There's more cars than there are roads here. So you could be out there and really frustrated, and you say, "Well, God damn it, I shouldn't be in this fucking traffic," right? And you could, you know, you could take that literally and then see the traffic as some kind of personal affront. But the truth of the matter is, there should be exactly as much traffic as there is, given the fact that there's this many people here and and these many cars. The traffic actually should happen because it's a natural consequence of people moving here and buying cars and driving around. That's just what should happen. Is this literally something you would tell your people in oh, your DB? Hell yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the good thing is about it is, is it frees us up, it frees us up for uh, an accurate perception, which is, I don't like this traffic. This traffic is, I'm really frustrated by this traffic. I wouldn't say things like this traffic is annoying because it actually prescribes, it, it, it assigns an, uh, um, a value or a, um, an emotional valence to the traffic. The traffic is annoying. The politician is annoying. You know, the, the, the guy who checked out my groceries is annoying. You know, what we really mean is these people do things that we don't like. We feel annoyed, but nothing can be annoying. We might feel annoyed. That's true. That's a fact. And being nonjudgmental, one of the good things about that is you remember this stuff about locus of control? Uh-huh. You know, I'm annoyed is an internal locus of control. And then I have responsibility and also power over what I want to do with my annoyance. You're annoying. I've just put all the power in you and I'm at your mercy. Uh. You, the source of annoyance. Uh. So, 
so we use judgments and listen, everybody's judgmental. I'm judgmental. You're judgmental. We're all going to be judgmental. And I, I tell my students this, I don't really care. I'm interested in the judgments though that cause you suffering. Now you could make a good case for the fact that all judgment on some level is going to cause suffering. Yeah, that's probably true. But um, certain judgments are not my priority. Like I get judgy of my um, wife's work situation from time to time and the way she gets treated at her job. And I'm like, well, so-and-so is an asshole, right? I don't really have a problem with that judgment because it's a shorthand way of communicating my love and support for Colleen and also my desire to protect her. And that judgment doesn't doesn't um, interfere with my life. If I had the judgment, Colleen's an asshole. Well, that's a pretty big deal because that's my lady, right? Going through life thinking your lady's an asshole is a problem on many, many levels, right? Like it, it, it affects how I see her and I'm not seeing her accurately. When I say she's an asshole, I'm not seeing her accurately. And it's in my interest to see her and myself accurately, particularly if I want to address a problem. Like I don't like the way something happened. Instead of calling her an asshole, I can own responsibility. That to me is the benefit of being non-judgmental. Hard to do though. Hard to do. Hard to do. Yeah, hard to do. Uh, uh, there's three things I always teach my students about how to drop judgment. Um, the, the thing I want to say, though, before we get into that is it's not important to be non-judgmental. Like being non-judgmental will not make you a good person. And the idea that you could be a good person is a problem because anybody that can be a good person can then can also be a bad person. And you just invite yourself into a self-critical, self-judgmental attitude. Right. So being non-judgmental is not a good thing to do. It's a useful thing to do. It's like having a hammer to hang a picture. It's not good to have a hammer. It's useful to have a hammer. Mm. Right. So so I don't want to get into like, oh, you were judgmental and write people judgment tickets. I think that's useless. But if judgments are causing me suffering, maybe it's in my interest that they go. If they're causing you suffering, maybe it's good that they go away. So if someone in your group were to ask you, so Why? would I do this? What benefit am I going to get out of it? Great question. Great question. And I might say the thing about my wife. What's going to happen to me if I go through life when things that annoy me in my marriage, which is inevitable, I end up calling my wife an asshole. What's going to happen to my marriage? How am I going to feel towards her? What kind of problems are going to arise? And it's not too hard to imagine the alienation, the distancing, the loneliness, the fighting, the conflict that can come from that. Right. But if I can go to her and I could say, you know, the other day when you said this thing to me, it really hurt my feelings. We've got a shot at working out something. She can hear that. She can't hear, Colleen, you're an asshole. She can't hear that. Anybody that hears that is going to naturally get defensive and want to protect themselves, and rightfully so. So if I go through life with that attitude and that demeanor towards Colleen, I'm making my life harder, and I'm also hurting somebody that I really love and care for. I don't want to hurt her, Right. Now, if I have judgments that are not fucking up my life, then who cares? Oh, have at it. You want to say traffic is annoying and then asshole drivers and it doesn't mess up your life? Okay. Who am I to say? So for people in your group, the issues that they typically face given their relational traumas ah, yeah. uh, result in what kinds of strings of events where something will happen, they'll judge, you're annoying, yeah. or my spouse is an asshole. Yeah. What, what are the typical consequences of that not-so-useful approach? Yeah, it's good that you're asking this. Most of the time, people that come into my class, and I, I imagine most people in general can relate to the following, they have probably more trouble with self-criticism and self-judgment than they have with 
judging and criticizing other people. That's not always true, but that's largely true. Yeah. Anybody that uh, gets stuck with judging other people probably has an extremely strong self-critic too. So one of the things that happens to me is if, let's say it's addiction, right? Let's say it's alcohol addiction and I relapse again, which must be so fucking frustrating, but I relapse again and there I am. I wake up the next day and I've got the hangover and I start remembering all the wreckage and I'm like, oh my God, I'm a fucking idiot. Right. The problem with that is, while it might be understandable that I feel frustrated and angry about it, right, even frustrated with myself, the problem with that is, is it evokes the emotion of shame. So the minute I feel ashamed, the, 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 the action of shame is to hide. So one of the things that a lot of us with addiction can do is we can hide from ourselves. We don't look what the hell happened? I drank again. What happened? What led to what led to what led to what led to me picking up another drink? What got me there? If I'm ashamed and I'm just a fucking idiot who did it again, I can't learn. I can't learn. And then I can't respond differently the next time. And I'm vulnerable. Something's making me vulnerable. So as I understand it, the current wisdom in the world of addiction is that relapse is a part of recovery and a useful tool for learning. Because what I'm learning is, oh, there's a circumstance under which I might use again. That's in my interest to learn about so that I don't use again because I don't want to hang up, wake up with a hangover and recognize the problems that came of relapse. Yeah. And when you're ashamed, you feel like shit. You feel like shit. You need something to escape. Yeah. From that. And then what am I going to do? I'm going to drink again to escape shame or because I'm not paying attention to the things that make me want to drink and off we go. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We were talking about this before the podcast about quitting smoking and how hard that is. Yeah. 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 So um, it's in our interest to drop judgment because we get a distorted picture of ourselves in the world and that interferes with the way we act in the world and um, the things that we might make in the world. In your class, you're not doing a lot of interacting with the students' lives. No. Uh, But you are with your clients. Yeah. So... What kinds of things do you run into with people in general regarding non-judgment? I mean, from your experience. Well, judgment is fun. It's interesting. It. um, I don't know. What's fun about it? Do you think? I think for me, I get a charge out of righteous indignation. Like it's not. It's not useful for me, but it can be very rewarding. And I have a lot of struggle with shame. So righteous indignation can be really appealing. It can feel like an oasis in a big desert, mm. you know? So so uh, like you're, you're in a, a baseline level of shame yeah. with this temporary respite yeah. by shaming someone else. Yeah, yeah, right. Or at least in my head. Yeah. What an asshole, what an idiot or whatever, you know, right? Yeah. So for me, um, I... Uh, I think a lot of us do that. I think one of the things that we do is we we want respite. Your question was, what do I run into with my clients? Yeah. Um, so um, the fun and the reinforcing nature of judgment, that comes up. But also the pain that comes from um, being judgmental and not recognizing it and not having a way to slow down and um, take a look. The slowing down is often very difficult for people. It means that they have to face and confront difficult parts of themselves, uh, painful emotions, um, parts about themselves that they either are unfamiliar with or don't like. Um, um, And the unfamiliarity is actually, I don't know about you, but I found that very hard to deal with at times. Uh, The unfamiliarity I have with myself. Um, So... Meaning that to not judge and 
focus on outside loci of control, one uh, is to some extent forced to uh, pay attention to something other than that, which often can involve the self. And if one was relationally traumatized and neglected or abused uh, sufficiently growing up, there is a a unfamiliarity, as you say, I think that was the word you used, Mm -hmm. with looking at the self and of um, knowing what you're looking at. Yeah, and scared of what we might see, or scared that nothing is there. Yeah, or um, shame that nothing is there. Yeah, and then back to judging other people. Yeah, yeah, it's easier, safer, faster. Does DBT sort of. deal with sense of self? I mean, yeah. wise mind kind of is, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. but it because finding a self is yeah. important and absolutely but kind of hard to do. It is. So how does DBT do that? Well, non-judgment is actually a good place to uh, uh, be working with sense of self. Because it gets you away from distracting from looking at yourself. Great way to put it. Yeah, the distractions of judgment. Yeah, yeah. So um, um, now... Does it talk about self, DBT? Not, I, I don't think it talks about self in the way that you talk about it. Um, but so essentially... Yeah, I think, um, see, the thing about DBT is it has these two bits, and one of them is individual DBT, and I don't have a lot of experience or familiarity with that. But my guess is that any good individual therapist is going to be thinking and responding to and helping a person with their sense of self. I just don't have a lot of experience doing it. One of the things about teaching skills is it's curriculum-driven, so I just teach a curriculum. I think the curriculum has some real utility in it. It's just basic life skills that everybody has. But how DBT therapists think about sense of self, I don't think I could really comment well on. Mm. I suspect a good therapist is going to consider that. A bad therapist can be doing DBT and not thinking about that properly and you know not be optimally helpful or not helpful at all. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know, obviously, but... I find a lot of therapists that I know anecdotally, acquaintance-wise, they don't even know what this concept is, Mm -hmm. the self. And for no fault of their own, it's just not a very easy thing to grasp. It's not taught very often, particularly if you're at a a training program that emphasizes things that don't have to do with that. Like skills. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so it's, it's hard... And it's hard work too. It's it's not very clear or concrete work with clients. It's a it's really amorphous and can take a long time. Uh, it's much more concrete and understandable to do skill stuff. Yeah. And so I I don't know. I just I just wonder how many people are actually DBT or otherwise yeah. are, are paying attention to it. You know. Yeah. Anyway. Um, you know, okay. Here's, here's one for you. Yeah. I was uh, in a consult meeting with Marsha Linehan. This is a DBT developer. Pretty highfalutin psychologist, world-renowned in our field and all that, right? Yeah, the inventor of DBT. Yeah, yeah. And what she said is, um, when you get down to it, love is the cure. And what she was talking about is um, a sense of care and love that happens in a therapy relationship. And, you know, hmm. that's actually what Freud said, I think, in 1936 or seven. Yeah. And all the, 
humanistic people as well. Yeah, yeah. So I think that um, DBT is based in behavioral therapy, and um, that can look like and even become skill-based. And I think it probably could, if it's not done properly, lose the humanness that that I think, and I, I think you agree, should be present in a therapy relationship. In other words, we're focused on the topic and the what, and we don't talk about the dynamic and the experience of being together. And, um, um, that's never part of the thing. And we're just, you and me, we get together and we work on this problem in your life. You know, we did it. And I don't really believe in that. I mean, I'm willing to do it to the degree that it's necessary, but I don't actually think that's the main thing in therapy. I think there's this nonspecific, um, not perhaps talked about, um, experience of being in a room with somebody who's rolling up their sleeves with you, caring about you, being curious and interested in you and taking you seriously and wanting to help you. And maybe it is with a skill like, okay, let's teach you how to be assertive, you know? Okay. And let's practice that. There's probably something inherently loving in that if it's done right. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you recognize that. I very much doubt that DBT trainings and practitioners formally recognize that as a part of DBT. I don't know if they do. I, I think you might be right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know very many therapists. Again, it's not just DBT. It's all therapists. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, about, I don't know, five, seven years ago, came to a similar conclusion and reached a point in my career as an educator that I felt like I could finally say things that I felt without having to worry about people thinking they're dumb nice. or that they're even unethical. And one of the things that I started to say was that uh, it, things like therapy is love. Yeah. And that is what cures people. Yeah. Sure, there are other sorts of things that you can do as well. But you know, there's a reason why there aren't just DBT workbooks. I mean, there are, yeah. but there's a reason why they don't work as well. They don't. And there's a reason why people don't really like them as they much. don't like them as much. It's, there's a reason why people listen to this podcast and don't want me to just rattle off a bunch of facts <laughs> and... um uh, have a bunch of guests on where all I do is just interview in this very cold way. Yeah. There, there's a reason for that because we evolved to be social. We're evolved social creatures. When you watch chimpanzees or bonobos, yeah, uh, though they're our closest cousins. And uh, it's clear that they need other people and they don't wander off by themselves and fix things on their own and no. do things by themselves. And unless it's some rare circumstance for the most part, they're constantly close to each other and grooming each other and communicating with each other mm -hmm. and feeling um, comforted by each other's presence. Mm -hmm. And we like to think of ourselves in Western yes. post Victorian society yeah. as, we're logical little individualistic computers who uh, <laughs> process information and and uh, spit out data yeah. and and outcome. And so I would say things like therapy is all about love and love cures, which are two words that when I used to say them or hear them in the beginning of my career, there would be gasps. People would say like, 
you can't say the word cure. Mm. I remember people saying that. You can't say the word cure. Wow. You can't say the word love. Oh. Like, that doesn't make any sense. And it's crossing boundaries and, you know, da, da. I've heard that too. I don't get it. Yeah. It's paranoia and bad training yeah. and just massive misunderstanding of what ethics are. Um, just a side note. I was talking with my students yesterday and uh, one student brought up a situation where he was like, I think, you know, a, a friend of mine is going through something really weird with, uh, with another therapist and there's like all sorts of unethical things happening. And so I was like, Ooh, I love scenarios like that real life scenarios where we can map it out and figure out where the ethical concerns are. Yeah. And after long story short, after we mapped out the whole thing, there wasn't really anything wrong with it. Oh. There was possibly a minor HIPAA violation, but it wasn't even that bad, uh, you know, without going into the details. Yeah. Um, and uh, it just is further evidence that there's this, this general paranoia that when things don't seem familiar or regular or typical, there's this automatic reaction from therapists in the community that it's unethical. There's, there's, there's something wrong with it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I do. So, um, I, and I'm not using the words metaphorically. I literally, literally believe that love cures, uh, most of our psychological issues. Now it's not going to cure schizophrenia. It's not really going to cure panic attack, but no, most of the things that people come into therapy for are relational issues. Yeah. Trust, uh, rejection, Mm -hmm. Self-criticism mm-hmm. is a is a love-related mm-hmm. issue. Yeah, loneliness, depression from loneliness, anxiety from loneliness, um, overeating from loneliness, addiction from loneliness. Like most of the issues that people come into therapy are uh, related to love, and the opposite, which is isolation and yeah. abandonment and rejection right. and being thrown away and or feeling like that. And so the cure is love you know what injured you to begin with (laughs) lack of love yeah what will cure that skills no no i mean skills are great yeah i use skills they have a place i do them all the time yeah you know i i have mental things that i do or behavioral things that i do but the foundation of it all and i'm and i'm glad marcia linehan acknowledges that that's great um, okay, so it's interesting because when we talked about mindfulness and wise mind last time, the way you talk about it is so holistic. It's not just this discrete module. As you talk about non-judgment, it involves so many other things. Yeah, It involves self-criticism and shame yeah. and love and the self and locus of control. And, and it's not just this simple advice to people of don't judge other people <laughs> harshly. Yeah. It's, it's something quite, quite large yeah. and, and all encompassing. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting. Um, so what else haven't we got to, do you think about non-judgment? Well, how to do it. Okay. Maybe important. Um, I, whenever I teach it, I, I always say three things. I say, well, there's three things you could do. First thing you can do is increase your awareness of judgment. And one way to do that is to um, pay attention to judgmental statements that occur just inside your mind or come out of your mouth 
And one way to do that is to notice the markers of judgment. So markers of judgment are evaluations. So things as good or bad, right or wrong, fair or unfair. Not that unfairness doesn't exist in the world, but a lot of times when we say a thing is unfair, what we're saying is it shouldn't be, right? On, in a way, I agree. It would be better if things were fair. And also unfairness happens because of the conditions that rise up to cause unfairness. So if we get stuck in, well, this isn't right, it, it, it isn't fair, we're getting stuck and we're going to fail to actually do anything effective about it, right? So staying on the sidelines and saying this fucking thing is unfair is passive and unhelpful. It doesn't help me if, I, if that's where I get stuck. Well, this isn't fair and I get stuck there how did this happen is a really more is a more useful thing so if i can pay attention to the markers of judgment good bad right wrong fair unfair the word should in all its forms should shouldn't must mustn't ought oughtn't all those forms of the word should they're all markers of judgment i'm reminded of all the times you criticized my writing when i would use the word should oh yeah you can tell I, I actually care about that. Yeah. <laughs> did I, did I, I would, I usually would like I'd offer a correction, right? Or a piece of advice about what to say instead. Yeah. It was something like, I hate the word fucking should stop using it. It was something like that. Oh, that's right. Cause you were saying you were giving advice about what supervisors could do. Should do. Therapists, good, ther- good, their, their supervisors should blah, blah, blah. And I was driving me batshit. Yeah. 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 It was like, cause I would, cause the, my book on supervision, every, <laughs> there's 19, uh, roles that I lay out for yeah. supervisors. Yeah. And I Good review, book, folks. I review the evidence. I give anecdotes. I talk about legal or ethical things. And right. then at the end I provide best practices, right? Best practices. That's the, the thing in our industry. And I would, I had a hard time finding other words, yeah. but as you're talking about it, I'm guessing that it's uh, more useful to say more useful. Uh, instead of should like it's useful to pay attention to your supervisee's emotions yeah it's useful to da, 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 not yeah. should because should is like a command or it implies if you don't there's something wrong with yeah. you whereas it's more precise to say it's useful yeah it's precision right now we're not going to banish those words from our vocabulary nor and we don't have to we don't need to banish those words like i'm gonna say pizza's good I don't mean that pizza literally has goodness. I mean, I love pizza. It's delicious. And anchovies are bad. It's the spirit behind the word. It's the attitude. The problem with the words is that we can fall into taking them literally. Hmm. Right. So. Yeah. I mean, as therapists, we hear that all the time, right? Like your client will just be like, yeah, well, I just need to really buckle down and work harder. Right. And you're like, okay. Do you want to buckle right. down and work hard? Right. Are you willing to look at what gets in the way of that if you even do want it? Yeah. Like, because that's the willpower model, right? I'm just going to, I just should buckle down. I, I need, just, I, I should, I should get over it. Yeah. I shouldn't dwell on right, this. Right, right. That. Yeah. I'm just like, why? Yeah. Right. Where's that written? Right? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. What's, what's so wrong with it? It, it, it's, I hear it in popular speak so right. much. It, it, it aggravates me, and I should be non-judgmental about it. Well, no, you are being non-judgmental about it. You're well, saying it aggravates you. You hear okay. it, and it aggravates you. That's completely non-judgmental. Okay. It's fabulous. Okay. So, yeah. Oh, uh, what you're saying is really important, because this happens to my students all the time. They think that being non-judgmental means being dispassionate. Oh. No, no. Judgment. The thing is, is that the human spirit is filled with passion, uh-huh. and passion is not judgment. Aggravation, love, ecstasy, boredom, annoyance... 
abject shame. They're all real. But it's taking ownership or recognizing yeah. that you're having the emotion. Yeah, I it, feel aggravated, by not, the way. You're not judging the other thing. Yeah. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, so so I, I say this, I say this every time I teach this. I teach this skill. I can't even tell you how many times I, I teach this skill in an average year. But but How many times? Uh, let's see. Six class, uh, um, two classes, six times, 12 times a year, we talk about non-judgment. Once a month. I talk about, and I say the same thing. I say, if there's one thing I notice in my students is that they think that being non-judgmental means being dispassionate. It does not. Judge, uh, feelings are facts. I feel annoyed is actually as factual and true as my table is made out of plastic. Right? It's absolutely exactly as true. So recognizing your passion and your feeling is non-judgment. It's just a statement about your internal um, world, your internal experience. I feel pissed off, right? Um, But isn't there another layer there of, because when I was saying it, I was thinking, well, I probably am annoyed because I'm, I'm making a judgment call about other people's motives or something like, like it's fine that I'm annoyed, but I think, part of my annoyance is generated from a misunderstanding or a, uh, a, a, a choice to label other people as doing something annoying. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. And, and you're, I, I think you have a really important point. Even though I'm not that. saying yeah. they're being annoying. Right. I, 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 that's where it's, but that's what it's based on. With anger, there's often the implication that either the other person or the situation should be different. Anger often has that implication with it. And really what that means is we wish it to be different. We want it to be different. It's really important that this be different. We don't talk like that, but we feel that way. Yeah. And we use words as shortcuts. So it's more helpful yeah. for everyone, yeah. including your students, to think about, well, what is it that I would like to be different? Yeah. And that's the precision. And then it, it helps to guide you. And right. Instead of walking through life and just being like, everyone's an asshole. Yeah. It's like, okay, well, let's look at this. Okay. I, I guess I'm feeling annoyed with people. Yeah. Um, why is that? What is it that I wish to be different? Well, yeah. I wish that people would... Um, stop beating themselves up about right. this, right. which as I'm walking myself through this right now, it, it, it releases this negativity around it. And it's just, it comes back to a place of a place I'm happy with, which is, which is compassion. compassion. So, but it, so I'm, tr- I'm trying to demonstrate this by going back to what I was saying. Uh, I was saying I was, anno- I was annoyed because other people, what was I? Your your brain. It was is... the way they talk. Um, 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 the way that the word "should" has sort of made its way into the lexicon. Oh, I yeah, I should. Oh, dwell. So I was I, I was saying, I I'm I'm annoyed when I hear other people say I shouldn't dwell on that. Just yeah. the word "dwell," right? Like the word "dwell." Ninety nine point nine percent of the time is a self-shaming thing. It's loaded. Yeah. Yeah. And so if I was to really use this DBT skill, right. It's me saying I, because I care and it hurts me to see other people hurting. I wish it was different that other people recognized that it's okay to 
think about things that your brain wants to think about and feel feelings that your body wants to feel. And there's no such thing as dwelling on something. No. Your your body, it, the analogy I think of is you haven't eaten in five days and you're hungry. You're not dwelling on food. Your, no. your, your body is telling you something important. Right. When it's five years after your divorce right. and you're still crying about it, you're not dwelling on it. Your body is telling you something that you just need to cry in that moment and you still have sadness about it. Right. Because you're a fucking human being. And maybe it's, maybe if it's five years later, maybe, not necessarily, but maybe one of the things that I'm doing is interfering with my grief. I'm inhibiting it. And so I find myself ruminating and quote unquote dwelling. And I'm paying attention to that. I'm aware of that. But I'm thinking that there's a character defect in me as opposed to, wait, if this is still alive for me, as live as it is, what is that telling me? Like, what can, what am I, what can I learn about it? If I get stuck in judgment, I can't learn a damn thing. I just won't. I'm won't dwelling. I need to stop dwelling. Yeah, I need to just willpower muscle away and not dwell. Whereas, so non-judgment is for others and the self. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And by non-judgment, I guess it, it the way, the words I would use would be more compassionate, I guess, or a a more accurate conceptualization yeah. of the way humans operate, really. Yeah. Well, I, I think the second part leads to the first part. Yeah. So accuracy, when we really understand a thing as it is, take as Ebenezer Scrooge. I love Ebenezer Scrooge. Why? He's this cranky old bitch, right? He's just this cranky old man, right? And if you saw him on the street or if you had to interact with him, you'd be like, I don't want to be with that guy. He's just a, he's a cranky old miserable asshole, right? But when he slows down and he starts taking stock in what's happened to him that's led him to his misery and his um, irritation and irritability and general demeanor of anger and thorniness at the world, it all starts making sense, right? Like, how did I get here? I'm an orphan. Had a shitty upbringing. I, I was scared. I sought out security through money and gain. And as a result, lost the woman that I still love and have chased money maybe as a way to compensate for the loss and as a way to try to stay secure. And I'm now I'm 80 some years old and this is where I am. I'm in this dead end, right? If I'm judgy, I can't learn. If I'm a business Scrooge and I judge the world, I'm not paying attention to me. And if I judge me, I'm not paying attention to me accurately. Like how I got here, it might suck to be here, but it sure does make sense. So the accuracy that I seek, I think leads naturally to an outgrowth of compassion. Ebenezer Scrooge is you and it's me. Everybody has a Scrooge inside them. Everybody knows what it's like to run away from difficulty or seek security at the expense of something else. Or, you know, everybody has that experience. And when we slow down and we pay attention, we see things exactly as they are, as they unfold. Of course we feel sad. Of course we feel compassion. We need to help our Ebenezer Scrooge selves have compassion for our tiny Tim selves. <laughs> yeah. Or our young Scrooge self. <laughs> yeah, our Bob Cratchit's in there. Yeah, right. Because Scrooge makes sense. He's just miserable. Yeah. Yeah. So so accuracy begets compassion, in my opinion. Yeah. I, I think that's true. And I think that that's 
something that I'm glad is a part of DBT, really, because yeah. I find it to be extremely useful. Right. <laughs> I, I remember, yeah. I, I don't know, when, it, when the light bulb really went off, it was probably like, I don't know, 13, 14 years ago. And I was riding the bus. I don't ride the bus a lot, but in fact, it might have been literally the last time I rode the bus in Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, and that's, you know, to people in Seattle, a lot of people ride the bus all the time. Anyway, I was getting off the bus, and the bus driver, I don't know what I did that bothered the bus driver, but it was just a regular, there was no interaction. I just, I was just stepping off the bus and the bus driver, I can't remember what she yelled at me, but she yelled something really aggressive and hostile and mm -hmm. accusatory. And I, and I, you know, after looking back, I was like, there was nothing I did wrong. You know, I paid, I didn't, you know, I stayed behind the yellow line. I, I, I didn't bump anything on the way out. Like it must, mm -hmm. it must have been this just massive misunderstanding. Mm -hmm. But at the time, she's yelling at me, and I turn around, and and I, I instantly was filled with rage. Of course, and I might have even said something to her, like "fuck you" or yeah. something. Right. I don't know. And for uh, I don't know hours after, I was ruminating on this, and fixating, and it was little traumatizing to me and i had all these judgments about her what's wrong with her why would you say such a stupid thing she's an idiot you know just all the things people would say right and then this light bulb went off where i saw her as this vulnerable scared misinterpreting misunderstanding human prop for very good reasons you know it, it, she, the what led her to that behavior if i really understood which of course i can't because can't. i don't know her and no. i probably will never know her probably not were everything that led to that behavior is logical and it, i just don't know i have i don't have access to those data points so all i saw was what seemed to be a totally illogical behavior but if i understood that and instantly and it made sense to me. Right. And then instantly I felt better yeah. because I could trust the world again. Like, well, most people act on logical progression. Right. And I use the word logic specifically because I talk to a lot of men in my practice and they will often confuse, you know, because they'll look at her and they'll be like, well, she was being illogical. Right. And I'll say, actually, if you understood her logic, it would be perfectly logical. You just don't understand the parameters. Right. It, it, it seems illogical to you, but people generally act logical. Right. Logically. And you just don't know the factors. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can look at a rocket taking off into the sky, and if you don't understand physics, it looks illogical oh, to you. Oh, totally. But there's, a, there's an underlying logic to, to that whole sequence of events. There's a science behind, you know, X, Z uh -huh. equals, you know, F to the whatever. Mm -hmm. Same for human beings. When we have a, a just supposing she's had a bad day, I actually did do something annoying that I don't know because... I, I don't ride the bus that often, and maybe I did something completely uncouth. I was the thousandth and one person that had right. done it that day. <laughs> Probably. She has been 
abused or alone or she's quitting smoking. She uh, heard things I was saying to a friend on the bus and it hurt her feelings or she acts, she thought she heard me say that the bus driver looked like a piece of shit or right. there's, there's something there and X plus Z equals F to the Y, which is her being hostile her being with me. Hostile. Right. It, it's a total logical thing. Right. Um, so that accuracy of seeing people is it, it's useful to guide my understanding of other people and mm-hmm. to actually deal with other people. Right. But man, it just makes me just feel just so much more light and yeah. trusting and happy and yeah. not burdened and, you know, uh, beaten down by evil, quote unquote, in the right. world. Right. It, it's hopeful, not only with randos on the street, but with my wife and my family and right. my friends. Right. If something happens, it's like, your first reaction, which I'm guessing is what the main purpose of DBT is, you know, close people in their lives is when you're really angry and you're like, my husband is an asshole, right? He's neglectful. He doesn't pay attention to me or whatever. Right. Or he says hurtful things. you, You back it up and you figure out, okay, what's the logic behind that? And what's the conceptualization? That's probably accurate. And then it, it, you can still say, I wish it would be different. That's the other side of the dialectic, right? Is how I feel. This still hurts me. I might understand him. I might have a bit of compassion for him. I also might still want it to be different yeah. or, or need it to be different. And I'm hurt. And I'm hurting. And I, I'm angry. Yeah. Um, but I have this trust now. Yeah. Um, or I will say, well... I'm not going to change that trauma in my spouse probably ever. Mm -hmm. So can I deal with that one? Knowing that Mm -hmm. it's not on me and, uh, and that person is just really sensitive to that particular thing. Yeah. Uh, Can I live with that? Knowing that it has nothing to do with me. Right. And that the person doesn't really go to bed thinking, what I think they're thinking about me. Right. Um, So that's, I think the beauty of DBT in this way. In this way. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. So, so being aware of judgment, being able to call it out, see it, being aware of it, that's probably step one. And one of the ways that my students do it, one of them done it recently is he bought a counter. Actually, he didn't buy a counter. One of my other students bought this guy a little counter, you know, one of those things you hold in your hand and you click it and it counts, Yeah. you know, one, and so what he did is he'd just keep it in his pocket. And every time he noticed a judgmental thought, he'd click it. And at the beginning of the week, he had like 70 some. And at the end of the week, and he, you know, each day he'd start over again. At the end of the week, I think he had like 10. Wow. Just awareness will slow. Oh, kitty. Just awareness will slow down. Um. That's our co-podcaster. We'll slow down uh, judgment. So that's step one. Step two is, can I translate judgments into non-judgmental facts, which is what you've been talking about, right? Like um, we go for accuracy. So so and so is an asshole. Well, actually, they cut me off in traffic and it scared the shit out of me and it really pissed me off. That's a non-judgmental translation for so and so is an asshole, right? Because everything makes sense and it's all just observations of what happened outside me and what happened inside me. Scared and angry, right? That's step two. And then step three, if I want to drop judgment, is to get curious about the judge. The judge in me is a great source of information about me. 
So if I find myself reacting, so-and-so is an asshole, what can that tell me about me? Because the judge is not bad. It's not wrong. It's inaccurate. And it tells me something about me. So like if I'm Scrooge again, I'm miserable and I'm cranky at the world. That person's a jerk. That person owes me money. What an asshole they should pay. Whatever it is Scrooge says about people. The judge is a source of information. And what is this, does that judge tell Scrooge about Scrooge? I'm really unhappy. I'm really miserable. I really don't like the way my life is going. I really don't, you know, like, and so my judgments really make sense because they're an outgrowth of my misery. And my misery is probably something the judge is trying to get me to pay attention to. The judge is a good source of information and in learning about ourselves. So the point of being non-judgmental isn't to like stop judgment. The point is to go for accuracy. And when judgment lodges and wants to stay, to not just muscle through that, but be curious and interested in who's the judge. The judge is an important part of you, an important part of me, and um, worth our attention. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, thanks. Is D- Does DBT have any component of investigating what is actually going on in other people's minds to... Yeah. Well, not as such as like you're describing, which is sort of like surmising and you're surmising. But actually like asking them, you know. Yeah. Hey, what happened? You just cut me off in traffic if that's what it is. Or you just. Or you're not talking to me for the past five hours. Right. What does that mean? I could describe to you what I think it means to me as I watch you not talk to me. And I can also get information from you. Because that actually could be relieving to me and also help me learn about you. And if you're somebody I care about, if you're not talking to me for the last five hours, means something, maybe we could address it. What module is that called? Uh, interpersonal effectiveness. Interpersonal effectiveness. Yeah, which really boils down to assertiveness training. Hmm. Let's yeah. do that next time. Next time. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there. Uh, I suspect everyone really liked this because they really liked the last one. Uh, and take care of yourself. And be non judgmental towards yourselves and others because you deserve it, and so do they. Mm-hmm.